when despair grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake, rest in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come in the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Wendell Berry, The Peace of Wild Things. Hello, friends. I'm Tyler Kleberger, and I do all of this because I'm interested in understanding who we are and why we are here and how we ought to live in this vast world that is our home. What does it mean to be human? Hence, becoming human. And today, I want to explore a component of life that is utterly obvious and, and yet deserves some introspective adventure. I want to explore the world. You see, we live in the world. Simple enough. But what does it mean to live in the world? Is there a right way to live in the world? And, you know, as spring is upon us, you know, we're surrounded by blossoming plants and, and warmer temperatures, and, unless you live in somewhere like Ohio. We do spring cleaning, and we become a bit more aware of the outdoors. So I think it's fair to talk about this topic of, well, the earth. And to play my hand, there's a tradition called agrarianism. And, and yes, I'm recording this with vast technological advancement, and my life is rife with things that technically go against agrarianism. But I live in a rural area, and I'm akin with the nuances of agriculture and, and homesteading, and I think agrarianism might have a ton of untapped potential that our modern society could use, which also means that my take on the earth and the world and ecology might be a bit different from what tends to occupy the airwaves of mainstream perspectives. So if you came hoping for the you know typical environmentalist prototype, well, the title should have given that one away. Or if you were hoping that you know the title was going to pick apart the green movement or something like that, well, I, w I won't quite fit that mold either. And if you've listened to anything I've made or read anything from me, you probably know that I'm a bit contrarian. I don't tend to line up neatly with predetermined categories. Or, you know, as a, a philosopher friend of, of mine recently said, I don't mind sitting in what she called the messy middle. And it's the same with ecology. I think ecology is an essential conversation on being human. You know, we're, we're talking about being alive amongst other things that are alive, including other people. So how ought we be at home in this world? But I feel the need to approach it a bit differently. And, and that's what I want to begin sharing on this episode. I've also written about this from a theological angle for anyone interested. Uh, I recently contributed to a book exploring important topics for the modern church in the United States. Books called Red Skies. A lot of great contributors in that. But I was asked to write on ecotheology. So if that is of interest to you, certainly check that out. But for the content today and what will turn into multiple episodes on this, 
it's based on some of that chapter. Uh, the chapter is called Ecological Entanglement, a Preferential Option for Creation. However, I think this conversation of ecology and earth and human existence within the earth has some general thoughts that, that transcend, you know, just a religious disposition. So I want to share some of that with you. Um, in this episode, it's going to cover the general approach I take. And I'm going to deconstruct some things that I don't tend to like. But then we'll get into to why, despite specific religious or ideological claims, all of which I just don't think nail it, why there are some philosophical and existential principles that I believe imply that we should have a certain disposition toward land and food and people and creatures and the wide, wide world that we inhabit within this vast universe as human beings. So there will be a few episodes. I doubt you'll agree with all of it. Hopefully you'll entertain the conversation. You can also support the show uh, and, and my work in general at coffee, which is ko-fi.com slash becoming human. I appreciate those of you who listen, who give feedback, who are part of the conversation, and, and especially those who support what I'm trying to do. But let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. So let's get started. And let's start with some finicky pet peeves. I've, I've noticed that anytime I talk about ecology, especially in the framework of ecological ethics, some people immediately pick sides. It's almost like you say ecology, and there's a group that says, all right, get out your organic free-range sign made on recycled compostable paper and let's meditate under a tree, while another group revs their critical engines and dismisses you as an indoctrinated hippie. Unfortunately, the conversation on ecology has become very political, and it's one of those things that you know, whatever you think about the state of the earth and how you interact with the natural world, it's going to be a determinant of your political ideology. Only liberals drive Priuses. And, you know, if you throw away your aluminum cans, well, you're a conservative. We tend to do this, right? There are certain dynamics of life where your disposition is actually an indicator of your identity. And it immediately presumes this, this vast group of categories that you have to belong to and adhere to. It's like each perspective is a club with a list of membership requirements. And I've just found that this is, it just isn't very accurate. It's messier than that. In fact, I often see, you know, the so-called redneck conservatives, they balk at liberal engagement with what's often called environmentalism because they go, well, you're not going far enough. You're not paying attention to ecological concepts that are much more obvious. And I've seen a lot of, you know, red voting hardcore types do some of the ecological practices that highbrow left-leaners wouldn't even consider. And part of this is because a person's relationship to the physical world is dependent on their geographical location. Rural people, and I live in a rural area, tend to practice some of these things. Like farm-to-table cooking is quite normal. And they've been doing it before it was cool. Or somebody who takes a libertarian bend. They're, they might create direct access to things like electricity or water. 
simply because it's important not to be dependent on large corporations for them. I'm just saying, can we go ahead and remove the political discourse from this conversation for a second? I'm not particularly interested in it. And I think there's enough of a principled approach without all that stuff. I I don't want to call on some form of legislation or uh, government mandate. I I don't care to promote one form of our cultural battle over another. Because I genuinely think this conversation is way simpler than that and also way messier. And we could go even further to how, you know, the supposed antagonists to ecological ethics, they're practicing a lot of ecological ethics. And a lot of people who take on the environmentalist badge, you know, they check off a lot of the agreed upon boxes, but they're not really doing a whole lot of productive work. Like you flew on an airplane to an environmentalist conference, but you're criticizing the backwoods person because they don't use organic shampoo, which still comes in a single use plastic bottle. I guess I will be taking one hard stance. I don't like the term environment. That's the title, right? I don't care about the environment. But don't balk yet. Give me a chance to explain what I mean here in a few minutes. But yeah, I I don't care about the political divide entrenched within environmentalism either. I do care about ecological ethics. And I think it is an essential conversation when we're talking about our humanity. So I'm hoping I can provide a reasoning one that transcends the current discourse, but that also offers a means for everyone to interact with the earth in a particular way. And yes, I know this causes me to potentially piss off both sides. I get it. I still don't care. So what I'd like to do then is simply consider if there is a philosophical reason to practice certain ecological practices without being beholden to the the cultural categories. Is there a reason to interact with the earth and nature in a certain way beyond political or ideological or religious affiliation? If so, what is that perspective? And what are the practices? What is the right way to do this, if there even is one? So, whether you want to talk about climate change or global warming or hippie commie sheep steering, I don't care. Go on and have that conversation. What I want to do is look at what's behind all of this. Is there something larger that we can attune ourselves to? Now, I I am willing to enter the conversation that the earth is undergoing dramatic alterations, unmatched in previous millennia. And, And this could be as simple as the effects of, like, invasive species in local ecosystems, you know, resulting from global travel or the manipulation of native growth. That's an interesting conversation to have. Or, you know, you could talk about with the exponential changes in, in, in technology and civilization, the earth looks different than it has in most epochs of history. The way our world functions today, it's unprecedented. And I think we can agree on that. And well, now maybe we're starting to get to something more foundational. And all of these things, you know, and listing the stats or entering those political conversations, what it has done is it has caused attention to grow. This is being talked about more than also probably any other epoch in history. Now, I do want to make a point here that ecological alterations are not new. 
and, and I'm not saying like climate changes always happen. I, again, I don't care. I mean that, well, for example, the area we know as Egypt was once a lush, vibrant cascade of vegetation. It happens. At the same time, there are other examples and other historical settings than our own where ecological alteration happened as a result of human decisions and technology. But today, we're very aware of the concept, aren't we? And the primary response has been to take sides. You know, some say science is obvious, and therefore we should do these things. Others claim that this is all blown out of proportion. But here's the deal. We all seem to acknowledge that the earth is different and continuing to become different. And from there, yeah, you've got a range of responses, all of which can be debated. You know, some, it's apathy. The other end of that is, you know, calling for full sweeping changes of infrastructure with, without, of course, you know, eliminating the lifestyle that produced the infrastructure. And these debates are going to continue. Is the science real or is this all the result of meddling bureaucratic agendas? And the debates probably should continue. But again, that's not what I am concerned about. I'm interested in asking, despite ecological alterations or ecological decline, is there generally a proper way to relate to the earth? Are certain lifestyles or social structures better than others? Like if there was no conversation, if no one decided to bring up the issue of the climate, what should we be naturally doing anyway? What should this be like? I mean, if the only reason we're, we're even considering ecological ethics and practices is because we are afraid of what might happen to us, that's a bit selfish. It's also not the best tactic. Is the only reason certain groups are trying to do the right thing is because there's a problem. If, if there were no apparent issues, would we still go on doing whatever we wanted? And that's what I mean with the whole political divide. Reactionary ethics aren't usually the best way to determine ethics. It's not usually the best way to determine what the right thing is or what the best thing is. It's like only caring about your marriage when you've got divorce papers in hand. So, so you're going to tell me that you love me now that there's a fear of loss. We should be asking, what's the best way to have a marriage in the first place? So I'd like to backtrack into what the best means of relating to our world are regardless of the circumstances. What should the marriage look like in general? Which, hey, just might offer solutions to some of those problems that have now captivated the attention of so many people. Just to be clear then, please don't pigeonhole me in some sort of political camp. Not interested? Don't care. And I don't think much of the noise coming from the debate is actually that meaningful or helpful. I'm interested in something more general. Now, that being said, I do think some of the issues that are a part of our attention can reveal some shortcomings. The symptoms can expose improper approaches, right? And I don't mean, hey, you know, ice caps and stuff. Yeah, probably should check that out. But if we want to know where this ought to go, we could look at a few of the primary causes to see where we've gone wrong and help us consider better alternatives. And hopefully this will be clear as we go on. 
Not only do I think this is a poor political issue, it's not just about big earthy things. You know, those big issues might help us look at more foundational problems and causes, but if we only care about the big issues, we're missing a lot of smaller issues that may be even worse. You know, it's like death by paper cuts or something. For example, there's a temperature problem. Okay, where did that come from? Dependence on certain technologies. Okay, where did that come from? And what you begin to see is that there are cultural norms that, in my opinion, negate proper ethics. And because they're not fancy or not applauded by the correct people who have particular powerfully voices, those things don't always get talked about. It also keeps us from critiquing the norms as a whole. And, and here's the deal. Most people, regardless of what camp they adhere to, they're all participating in some of these norms somewhere. And, and there are less discussed realities that might help us see what's going on and, and what we could correct more than the big conversations of the day. Like, yeah, you've got air pollution. As far as I can see, none of the people waving those flags have stopped driving cars or stopped using air conditioning. And there's water issues and soil issues for sure. But what else? Now, I mean, water, for example, what, the water issue is bigger than just the quality of water. I know that gets brought up a lot, but I'm not saying that's not an issue or we shouldn't consider it. But think about the uh, Ogallala Aquifer, biggest aquifer in the United States. It's been depleted more in the last six years than the previous 60. And no, turning off your faucet for that extra second isn't going to solve that larger problem. But what is the larger problem? And is it even a problem? Does that use of water and that state of water reflect the best way to do this thing called being human? Or if we were to talk about soil, and this is becoming a bit more noticeable, especially in agricultural circles, 1,700 acres of land becomes desert every minute, and not like Sahara Desert. It, it becomes unusable soil. At the same time, it takes approximately 1,000 years to build up just three centimeters of soil naturally. What's the problem there? Is it a problem? Is that the best way to engage with the earth for the sake of being a human being? And uh, might as well handle this up front. Don't just jump on farmers. Farmers can't be understood without banks. And farmers trying to sustain a livelihood can't be understood without consumer demand. Most farmers I know, they're still trying to stay as true as possible to their ecological knowledge. And, and it's a direct, direct result of them working with the land every single day. I'm guessing the people most critical of farmers haven't done that. And they haven't experienced what that is. And the fact that doing so, trying to stay true to their ecological principles, is not going to feed their family. Not in our culture. So yeah, there, there's tons of compromises. But those compromises are often a result of a world that has turned farming into what it is. Or you could look at like foreign trade regulations too, which allows our economy to access generic products much cheaper, which forces other farmers to increase the scale of their operations in order to keep up and therefore compromise certain agricultural practices, which then brings up the issue of banks and loans in order to produce more with more equipment and more expenses and of course, function at a certain level of farming that we would call big, it costs a lot of money. 
and then they go into debt. And you get this whole cycle, and I think there's a reason that farmers are one of the top demographics committing suicide. And just in case we forget, we are all farmers by proxy. Pointing a finger at the farmers ought to be like pointing at a mirror. We all eat. There is no such thing as a post-agricultural society. So we all should share the blame. Anyway, let's keep going with some issues. Another high-end one, maybe. Half of the biological species of the Earth will be threatened by the year 2050. Is there a cost to the loss of species? More than it, you know, just being sad or that we don't like it. Does that have an effect on the Earth that we should be concerned about generally? Or we could talk about how crop monocultures, which, yes, deals with the common farming trifecta of corn, soybeans, and wheat, but also bananas and apples and iceberg lettuce. These are highly susceptible to disease when they're in monocultures, which leads to a really fragile linear economy where if one part breaks, well, we've seen what happens with that before. Or there's the issue of how pollution has affected the human body. Not to mention how it has affected sociological structures, you know, think hospitals, schools, transportation, etc. Or we could talk about how the nutrient density of produce has decreased substantially. Or how the majority of what is in our food is created in a lab. Even organic, free trade, whatever stuff. Usually all that happens on the other side of the world too. Or we could talk generally about how far our food has to travel in order to get to us, including the question of who gets to make the most money from that process. Spoiler alert, it isn't the farmers. Or how it could take 1.5 Earths to sustain our current resource usage. And the list could go on. But again, the primary question here isn't if these things scare us enough to change things, or if these are just things that we don't feel good about. The question is whether this is something we should prefer to have. Is this generally good? Are these situations and their effects good? Are they bad? If they are bad, why are they bad? And should we even care? And there's other curiosities. Why has all of this paralleled the decline of communities, especially rural ones? What about the decimation and homogenization of indigenous cultures? Are we depressed, sad, lonely, and dying in a world that we have objectified for our own gain yet at our own expense? Or, as the philosopher Bo Burnham suggests, 20,000 years of this, seven more to go. What I think the onslaught of stats ought to suggest is that all of these issues correspond in parallel. These things are connected. There's a standard of living that we have chosen, and it's been at the expense of other things. Is that expense just part of the deal? There's no avoiding it? Does our standard of living deserve to be the priority, even if it comes with these compromises? You know, there's pollution and soil degeneration, but we have roads and, and we have certain food demands and it requires certain technologies to uphold and certain economic practices. And, you know, it's all tied together. And in my opinion, it comes down to individual people living in the world in a certain way. So what I want to ask is, is that the right way? Is it the best way? Does it reflect the best version of existence? How ought the world function? And with all this stuff, should we care? 
And if we should care, what should we actually do? So, here is my primary argument. And it is, of course, highly influenced from the agrarian tradition, most notably Wendell Berry, who wrote the poem we began with. It goes like this. Once we have squandered the gift of creation, no matter how desperately we repent and no matter how well we have interacted with political slogans and ideologies, the world will be simply and finally gone. Whatever you think life is about, whatever you are after, whatever captivates your perspective, without a place to live that life, none of it matters. Before anything else, you have to be able to live and survive. So are we living in a way that reflects the best means of surviving and continuing life? See, my, my ecological disposition is rooted in the assumption that life is worth upholding and upholding to the best extent. And to uphold life, we have to be able to live. And without the capacity to live, there is no conversation left to be had about life. I guess I mean that if, if you're passionate about something, there's a topic or identity or persuasion that demands your fervor, well, you kind of need existence to continue in order to be able to have that other thing continue. And looking at all of these stats, it's not about creating fear or something or, or saying like, see, unless you start doing A, B, and C, you know, you're going to kill the world. It's about going, is this the best way to uphold life? What practices make the most sense for us to be able to do this well? Existence is dependent on something. You need certain things in order to live and thrive. So you can talk about the stats all you want. I'm just saying that no perspective or ideology or politics matters if you don't exist. So we should probably consider the source we are dependent on and how we're going to continue to exist. And whether or not this whole modern discussion on climate is a problem, would we still want to live in a way that destroys what we need to live. We currently live in a way, I think, that guarantees we one day won't. So that's my epistemological assumption, that we shouldn't live that way. But what's the alternative? How should we approach the earth? And, and yes, I am ex assuming here that existence is given. So for those nerds out there who are going, well, there are philosophical perspectives that claim that, you know, we should not be concerned about existence. If that's your stance, I have no argument with you. Our disagreement lies further back in the epistemological venture. But if living is assumed, I do think it implies a particular approach to living. One that I don't think is captured well by either side of the political debate and one that if we determined what it was, we could start making sense of all the things we should actually be doing and all the things we shouldn't be doing, or at least try to begin that process. All right, so here's what I want to eventually do. I want to give you four reasons why I think we should care about our relationship to the natural world. None of which are ones that I hear a lot from either political camp. And none of which are based on any movements or fads, you know, calling for change or calling for confrontation to the people trying to make the changes. 
I just think there are philosophically grounded reasons that imply certain ethical standards. And I apologize that I took so long just to say I don't think about this like most people. But now that we're here, I like being able to start from scratch. I think there's a right way to generally approach this stuff. That also doesn't mean I follow them well. I just try to. So next episode, I'll try to give my argument for why I do think we should generally be concerned with the whole existence question and why I think it leads to certain ethics. But before we get to those, the four ingredients of ecological ethics, we might call them, there is this larger perspective that I think undergirds it all. This is my starting point. And it's why I think the conversation matters, and it's what I think can help us actually live better as humans in this world. I call it ecological entanglement. Now, what's interesting about this idea is that it is cross-disciplinary. Now, I've seen similar articulations of this idea in sociology, but also psychology has them. Communication, biology, geology... I mean, it seems like every major scholastic tradition has said, hey, people and things are interconnected. That's what I'm calling ecological entanglement. It's the idea that every living thing influences, depends on, and affects every other living thing. And one of the reasons that I think this is a good starting point, in contrast to the normal political conversation is because it helps reframe the ecosystem. It's you know kind of normal for us to say like, oh, our relationships depend on one another, or look, these plants are practicing symbiosis and they need each other in order to grow well. That's normal. But then to look at an entire ecosystem, including humans, plants, animals, etc., and to say that's interconnected, that influences, depends on, and affects every single thing within that, I think that helps us reframe what we're talking about here. And just for some examples, within other disciplines, I mean, we could talk about argon atoms, these atoms that don't completely disintegrate, and yet they contribute to the breath of any living thing, and the same molecules have continued to do so throughout history. Or you got quantum mechanics. See, a bunch of this interconnection, interdependency within that. You could include Young's archetype. You could include how geologic layers actually work together to produce new geologic layers. Or there's my friend, George Herbert Mead. We're not actually friends, but I think we would be if we lived during the same historical time period and you know we're actually around one another. He was one of the first social psychologists who talked about an idea he called the social self. Essentially, the social self is about how your being is determined by the beings that surround you. He talks about um, the looking glass self as well. You know, how society, your surroundings, they're a mirror that constantly affect who you are, how you think, what you do, how you function, all of that. But that's all just to say, there's all these different fields. There's this constant stream of how no person lives on their own island. There's an interdependence that permeates through all of existence. Everything is entangled. And I think the same thing is true about the earth. For, for those who are proponents of uh, chaos theory, this is the same vein, but it's bigger than just how one action can impact other actions. 
let's go back to farming, right? You eat. Is there then a way that you could eat and interact with the earth that actually disconnects from that inherent connection? Is there a way that you eat that could ensure that one day you won't be able to eat because those things are entangled? You need the food. The food and the land need you. And if those don't work in a particular way, could it be at the negative effect of both of them? If there is an interdependence between things that make up existence, destroying any part of those things, it's like cutting off the branch you're hanging from. And now this brings me to why I don't care about the environment. It only took me 32 minutes to get here. And I've been skating around this word delicately, and it's on purpose. I don't like the word. And the reason I don't like the word is because it contradicts my primary premise of ecological entanglement. Like, directly contradicts it. Ergo, I do not consider myself an environmentalist. I also think it actually reveals how we're not thinking rightly about ecology. Now, this word has only entered common nomenclature quite frequently. Its origin is French, and the first known usage was in 1827. And the use was about being a way to describe things around a person. Environment is that which is around. Now, eventually, the emphasis on around became used to describe the physical and natural world around human beings. So that's kind of the evolution of the word. Another important development with this word, though, is that it became a way to refer to the physical and natural world at the same time that another common word was going out of fashion. This was the time when the scientific revolution was at full clash with religious fundamentalism in Europe. So to speak of creation, that was too associated with you know the spiritual assumptions of religion, especially time time period where religion was really ecstatic. So you had this divide between like the Christians and the scientists, and the Christians talk about creation, and the scientists couldn't be like them, hence environment. And I understand that process. I do. The development of Christianity at this time was obtuse at best. Christianity during the 19th and 20th centuries wasn't, and, and still isn't, quite known for its astute care of the earth either. So you've got fanaticism and failure. Common culture was right to disassociate with that. But in popularizing the word environment, the natural world became synonymous with things outside of and separate to humans. If you're going to care for the environment, you are caring for something external to us. It's something you have to go out to. But that perception's continued to today. You know, if you use the word creation, it's assumed you're talking about and implying all of the tenets of Christianity with it. But creation also captures something that environment doesn't, because creation implies all that exists, including humans. And when considered correctly, creation deals with what philosophy calls all contingent beings, all things that did not create themselves. So does this infer a creator? Yes, something transcendent of that which is created, it doesn't mean you have to jump straight to God or Christianity or whatever else. A word like creation also allows us to include all the stuff on the same plane together. 
So to take care of creation is also to care for yourself and everything else. And that's the primary premise of ecological ethics. That there is a connection between you and the things around you to the point that they aren't really around you, but with you. There isn't too much of a difference between you and something else because they're interdependent. I think the Bible got this one right, actually. Uh, There is a source of existence that holds together all parts of that existence together. We are different and diverse, and there's all of these uh, various species, but we are not separate from the world. We're intrinsically a part of it. We do not exist outside of the natural world. We are made up of it. Or if you want to go in a more humanistic direction, you could refer to Carl Sagan. We are star stuff, just like everything else. See, with the word environment, it's a different thing we're talking about. And if you're noble enough, you'll go and you'll help that other thing. When you're talking about creation, or, or better yet, ecology and the ecosystem, what changes when you realize that you are intrinsically a part of that thing? When you see that there's an interdependence and belonging between you and, well, everything else. It's similar to Martin Luther King Jr.'s take on justice. You know, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Well, a threat to the wholeness and vitality and flourishment of anything is a threat to the flourishment of everything. Because ecology deals with all of it. It deals with you, me, the people you don't like, they're included. The ones on the opposite end of the debate, the apathetic, the careless, the ignorant, the arrogant, the backwards, the forwards, the nobodies, the somebodies, the top, the bottom, the elite, the lowly, the rich and powerful and the poor and weak, the Prius driver and the dude with a truck that is unnecessarily big. Every single person who breathes is part of the ecological picture. But then it also includes everything else. Buildings, roads, electricity, paint, clothing, towns, cars, concrete, crops, soil, animals, plants, creatures, but also metal and rocks and chemicals and plastic and every single molecule that makes up the world that we know. Ecology includes everything. It involves everything and all those things are symbiotically entangled. Ecological entanglement. That's what I mean with the phrase. And that's why I don't care about the environment because I don't think there is such a thing. There's only this. And this, everything, is dependent on everything else for the existence of any of it. All right. I should probably try to wrap this up a little. Hmm? I want to end with giving a picture of um, how I understand what this starts looking like. And the agrarian tradition uses a word that I've, I've found a lot of benefit in using, and it's the word health. The problem is that the word health kind of has its own meaning in our modern world, right? So unhealthy is you're sick, you go to the hospital. Health is about what foods are good for you. But I think it's more than that. And, and it's not a coincidence that the words health and holy have a common root, nor that the word to heal literally means to make whole. This is what I'm talking about with health. You know, we often think that health is what happens when disease is absent, similar to how we talk about peace being the absence of conflict. Well, health is when the world is as it's intended to be. It's this 
harmonious membership of wholeness in the totality of a place. And here's why I think this word is great. Because if that's the case, the smallest denomination you can have of health is the health of an entire place and all of its parts. Individuals, relationships, communities, social systems, and the ecosystem all have to experience it together. And the moment one component of a, of a place is ignored implies the deterioration of health as a whole. So in order to be a healthy person, well, there have to be healthy relationships, which requires healthy communities, which requires healthy societies and economies, which requires a healthy ecosystem. The, this understanding of health has been a great way for me to conceptualize ecological entanglement. Because if the life of, of everything else is passing through your life and it's affecting it, you know, whether that's the, the state of the air or the, the gossip going on in your small town or just the things that you are eating, it's the life of something else affecting you. And so if one part of that is in a diminished state, eventually it's going to find its way back to you. And I love, I love a way that Wendell Berry says this. He says, to dishonor the soil is to do so at your own demise. In turning against the world, we are turning against ourselves. And it might take some time. You know, your individual life might avoid the consequences for a bit. But it's similar to what Desmond Tutu talks about with dead bodies in a river. He's using this as, a, as an example of justice. And he says, you can compassionately respond to those deaths. But eventually, you need to head upstream and find out what is causing it, because if you don't, it will trace its way back to you. Now, there definitely needs to be conversation on what exactly health is, right? We can just say, you know, for things to be there the way they're supposed to be, for things to be whole. Well, what does that mean? That's an ethical conversation and that should happen. Those debates should continue. But generally, health would be similar to what seems to be the goal of every wisdom tradition, universal flourishing. The whole earth will thrive or destruct together. In order for anything to flourish, it all has to. That's what all this comes down to for me. We, we are dependent on everything. It, it all has to function in, in a vital way, in order for you to function in a vital way. And so we should be concerned about it. And, and that comes through the, the promotion, the fostering of health. That's the best way to do this, in my opinion. What is your perspective then? And I'm not saying that you have to agree with this, but it is a premise that I think is worth considering. And if this is true, then it does imply certain actions and behaviors and ethics, etc. So do you see yourself in a web of relationships by which entire places and all of its creatures are going to sustain mutual life together. Do you consider that the world creates, depends on, and is literally a part of one another? You know, nothing lives in isolation. Everything exists in the context of what makes life possible. It's like we're all just a bunch of neighbors and fellow sojourners, you know, trying to wander through the world together. And are we willing to take this logic to its end? Because it implies that life carries a responsibility to this interdependence, this ecological entanglement. If the whole world shares life together, how do you honor that? You know, if the environment is not a separate landscape of 
raw materials, you know, reduced to parts for desirable use, or even it's not a separate entity that would just be cool to offer our noble assistance to, then that makes certain things impossible, or it should make certain things impossible. If your life is a gift that you did not create but are dependent on, then we share that gift with everything else, which also has the same gift, which is everything, then we can't just do whatever we want. There's no such thing as your autonomy. There's only responsible or irresponsible dependence. Our bodies exist by the earth. They come from it, they return to it, and they are sustained by it. We must, therefore, treat our bodies and the earth in light of this interconnected membership. And certainly, this impacts more than just ecology. This can inform how we have relationships, how we interact with ourselves. It ought to impact how we think about violence and war and nation states and economies and everything, I suppose. But that's ecological entanglement. It is seen that the subject of life in the world, all of life, is one great subject. And when you start there, now you can start to unpack what makes the most sense to do. And all of this sounds great right? Maybe it doesn't. But the important part, if you're willing to start here as your philosophical premise, you then have to ask what those ethical responses ought to be. And I say ought on purpose, if only to justify that I I don't live this out myself very well. It also has to, it has to go past the current fads of the day. You know, it's, it's hard to rail against pollution while sitting in an air-conditioned single-family home. And if we only start with the fads of the day, whatever side of that issue you're on, you're probably not going to be considering all of the different components. You're just looking to make sure you're checking off the right boxes. But everything we do has a moral implication to this reality. And if you start with ecological entanglement, and you ask, what ought this look like? Now you can start seeing every component of your life through this lens. And whoa, the compromises will be rampant. You know, just, just for example, if the standard is health, driving a car would probably be a compromise. For the record, I drive a car. Or, or just to harken back to the agrarian tradition, there should be no waste. Anything used should be reused. And I'm not just talking about recycling or composting. Those can be great examples, but even many of the components required to recycle certain materials are not themselves recyclable. And from technology to the materials of our homes and how we construct homes on a piece of land to the utilities and, and food, and just as health deals with everything, so do the ethical ends of ecological entanglement. And just to be clear, I'm guessing that any reasonable person who has listened to this point is going, none of this is practical. On one hand, we have to eat to live. Something needs to die, whether plant or animal. And I can only say that health does not mean the elimination of suffering. The furthest health can probably go is that existence can sustain indefinitely. You, me, and plants and animals, we're still going to die. That's a separate philosophical issue. Or you go, there's no way any of this is possible. And it's quite likely that this perspective would fall into the greatest good argument. And unless we're all going to go back to tribal existence, which had its own problems, then yeah, it, it's probably not possible. 
you ain't going to do everything. But we can start with the next right step. And I just think the best place to start at all is with this perspective. If you can even begin filtering the decisions and actions and behaviors of every day through the lens of ecological entanglement, then we will at least move in the right direction. Which begins with throwing out the political baggage and getting rid of the environment stuff. But I think there is something about starting from the general and moving toward the specific as opposed to assuming specific practices and trying to transpose them to general perspectives. There's no list of the things you have to do to be in on it. And, and having that kind of list, it often blinds us to other possibilities and necessities, which is what we will start getting into next time. We still have to handle the four ingredients to ecological ethics, at least the four that I use. And then I want to start wondering what all of this looks like. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.